All right, it's time for Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry, Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Good morning, Keith. Good morning. So let's talk about the the BC Liberals. I thought this was interesting when they came out recently and said, Dr. Bonnie Henry should drop those vaccine mandates for health care workers. What did you make of that? Like, it was interesting to see the Liberals have mostly stayed in, you know, sided with Bonnie Henry on these rules. They haven't really questioned them, but now suddenly they're saying, wait a sec, drop these mandates. Yeah, first uh, big departure away from backing public health. So uh, uh, asking that the mandates be dropped in health care, right. long-term care, yeah. and the civil service. So right now, uh, as a condition of employment, you have to have be fully vaccinated to work in a BC hospital, a long-term care home or for uh, a, a government office, if you're a member of the civil service. It, yeah. Now, the number of people who have refused to get vaccinated for whatever reason is very small. The Liberals used to figure put and put these 2,500 unvaccinated people back to work uh, to suggest, I, I think they're sort of suggest that will ease pressure on the healthcare system. That's been rejected out of hand by uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry. And when you drill down further on the numbers we're talking about, it's not 2,500 uh, full-time workers. I got the numbers yesterday. Yeah, it's about 570 full-time people throughout the province out of 160,000 people, and there's about an equal number of part-time people. But the majority of the 2,500 are 1,311, I think, are casual workers who actually don't have shifts. They're just called in every every now and then. So when we look at some of the backlogs and the waiting times to get into this healthcare system, we see emergency rooms temporarily shutting down in some cases in BC, which is very troubling, right? Could you? Is there any legitimate argument to say that it's the vaccine mandate that is causing some of these problems and delays? Oh, I think in 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 certain small towns in the north and the interior, where yeah. the where the uh, unvaccinated rate is about three percent of the of the all the staff. Again, that includes casual workers. I think the argument might be able to be made. Yeah, that could have an impact on some of these small towns. But tracking this for months now, what's having a bigger impact on a daily basis in the healthcare system is the number of people who have COVID. That's what's causing workers to stay home. 15,000 uh, people uh, t- in the last uh, first week of June uh, were homesick uh, over that first week. That compares to about 6,000 in pre-pandemic times. So there's many, many more people testing positive for COVID-19 and therefore not being able to come into work. And that's happening in all industries, but particularly in healthcare, it seems to be running quite high. Okay, let's listen to Dr. Bonnie Henry on this point. She was asked about the Liberals saying, why don't you drop these vaccine mandates in healthcare, let these workers go back back on the job? Here's what she had to say. Here in BC, and uh, the public service uh, has made the decision to do to take the initiative. I know that it's 99% of people are vaccinated, and I think at right now, with the uncertainties that we have, it's fully reasonable to continue with the course, and certainly in healthcare settings. Okay, so the uncertainties are what the potential for. Well, Another already, wave in, of the my, in my inbox today, I get all sorts of COVID emails from different organizations. Um, we're starting to see an increase in cases in England. We've always lagged behind England on a number of cases and the new variants that are emerging. So we're still in the pandemic. Uh, there's still a lot of COVID-19 out there. There was a study a few months ago that suggested unvaccinated people uh, elevated the risk of people getting COVID, um, even fully vaccinated people, by about 15%. So you're not going to, anytime soon, unvaccinated people are not going to be allowed to work in BC hospitals. I just don't see that happening. You think that'll be permanent then? or Could be permanent. I think we want to, I think the signals that are coming from Dr. Henry and other health officials is let's see what happens this fall. 
This fall is still a bit of a worrisome uh, area because that's the respiratory illness season. We're talking fall and winter. If we get through the fall and winter without much change, I, I think it could change. Um, but uh, it's also interesting whether they'll change the rules for the civil service, uh, which is not uh, it's not a hospital. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, um, the rules here at the legislature, for example, uh, the requirement for vaccine mandate is supposed to expire next week, but I have a feeling it's going to get extended indefinitely. So that vaccine mandate applies for the entire B.C. civil service? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, um, it's unclear whether you can walk into a BC government building without showing proof of vaccination. Like, you can't walk into the legislature yeah. if you're a visitor, unless you, at, at the door, just at the front door, you have to show proof of vaccine. Mm. That's supposed to be, that's supposed to expire on paper by the end of the month, but just checking around yesterday, I get the impression that's going to be extended indefinitely. So when you've got a 99% vaccination rate in the healthcare system among, among workers, like, as you pointed out, it's, it's a small percentage of people who are actually off the job. A lot of them are part-time or casual. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when the liberals say, hey, let these people go back to work, I mean, even if they did go back to work, would it make any measurable difference in service levels? It doesn't sound like it would make. Yeah. When you've got 160,000 people and f- less than 600 of them are off, uh, yeah. that's a tiny percentage. And putting them back on the job, I don't think, would, would uh, really change anything. Again, back to the, the bigger number. So you got 600 people unvaccinated and off the job. you got 15,000 people off the job because of illness. And a lot of that is attributed to COVID-19. Okay, let's talk about um, the state of union negotiations in, in the mm. public sector here in British Columbia. And I thought it was really interesting to see the transit strike uh, in the Sea to Sky region has been settled now with the help of a mediator. Vince Reddy, how long has this the Vince Reddy? Worker. This guy has been around forever, forever solving these disputes, and he's still Vin, going. Vin, yeah. How he, old is he? He's been around forever. He's been <laughs> around since the, since the 80s. Yeah. So, uh, and he, he settled, remember he settled that teacher strike? Yeah. Uh, he settled some high, uh, ferry strike years ago, very high profile uh, uh, strikes. Now he's suddenly emerged again and playing a key role here because even though this particular set of negotiations is with public transit workers it's outside the government's mandate because it's with a private contractor but already because this uh, the successful mediated settlement here has to co- has a cost of living adjustment incorporated in it that kicks in in 2024 that looks back to see okay what was the cost of living? And yeah. if it exceeds what the wage increase was, then the payout comes. And already you're, you're going to see union leaders of other public sector unions say this will be the model to be used in other settlements. And it has potentially enormous financial implications for the government. Okay, Vince Ray, like you said, what do you call him? The miracle worker. miracle worker. That's kind of what he is because he solved so many of these uh, intractable disputes. They appeared to be, uh, including this one. I mean, this was a this was a bitter strike. It was longest the unbel- ever transit strike. Longest transit strike in in BC history, yeah. right? So let's have a listen to. This is one of the workers. This is a video that was put out by the union Unifor here of uh, one of the workers explaining why they were off the job for so long. Have a listen. Our wage doesn't increase where cost of living um, these days has skyrocketed and uh, in Whistler in particular, how can we attract new bus drivers if uh, we're not paying them enough? Okay, and obviously you heard him reference the cost of living and inflation. You also heard him reference Whistler. Right, and, and that's and, and Vince also uh, singled that out as well. That so there may be an argument. This is a special circumstance because Whistler is a very expensive place to live. We'll see. At full disclosure, I'm a member of Unifor, just to make that, that clear for everyone. Um, but we're talking almost four hundred thousand employees are affected by the public sector wage mandate. Uh, Three hundred ninety-three thousand to be exact. I think one hundred eighty-three contracts 
Uh, so it'll be interesting to see the impact on this. So the, the BCGU was looking for five, five, and or five and five over two years. Yeah, um, a three-year contract. If everyone got five percent a year for three years, it would cost the government treasury almost ten billion dollars. So it's a huge amount of money that's on the table here. But we're, again, no, no sign of really serious impasse. The, the BCG will release a, a result of a strike vote later this week. I expect it's going to be a very high number. Okay. And then they'll return to the table. Hopefully, they think we'll probably put more leverage uh, in their pocket. Okay, I recommend Vaughn Palmer's column on mm-hmm. this in the Vancouver Sun on this topic today. And that cost of living allowance in that transit deal, that could end up being the, well, the inflation, floor. It could be a pattern for other deals. Yeah, inflation, last right? number I saw in the States was approaching 7% a year. The government, yeah. A lot of governments are hoping or thinking that inflation is going to go down, but there's no sign that it will. So that's about four points higher, four to five points higher than what's on the table from the government. Okay. In honor of National Indigenous Peoples Day in Canada, which is today, I think this is, uh, has continued to become uh, a, a more important issue as the days go by, how governments and business relate to First Nations, especially when it comes to resource management. Mm-hmm. So let me play a clip here for you of Ellis Ross, the Liberal MLA, the former chief of the Heisla First Nation. And here he is talking about how indigenous people, uh, when they control their own resources and their own traditional territory, can improve their standard of living and become independent. So here's what he had to say about it to me on an earlier show, and I'll get your thoughts. I showed up my community today where we're using our own money to build youth centers, using our own money to build elder centers, helping our own people with our own money, building up our own programs to address our own social issues, renovating our soccer field, our rec center, and the list goes on and on and on. But ultimately, I'd show them all the Aboriginals, the, a generation of Aboriginals who say, yes, this job I've got, it's amazing. I'm, I'm getting a mortgage. I'm getting a house. I'm getting a, a van. I'm going on vacation. You know, I'm, I'm on my own. I'm independent. And the council has achieved independence to the point where, theoretically, they could say to Ottawa, look, we don't need your money. We got our own. I mean, th- this is the, the fullest definition I can think of of independence. Okay, Ellis Ross on an earlier show talking about resource development like natural gas, LNG development for the Heisla. Your thoughts? Yeah, no, there's a lot of time for Ellis Ross. Obviously, he has enormous respect uh, out there. Yeah. Uh, but he's speaking for a lot of First Nations who want to get active in uh, economic projects. A lot of them include extracting natural resources. It's on a collision course with a lot of environmental groups. That's it. Yeah. Uh, Ellis, as I'm sure he acknowledged you, what drives him crazy are these non-Aboriginal environmental protests who presume to tell First Nations what to do on land they claim as their unceded territory. And this is going to be a fight that's going to happen with increasing regularity due to a combination of factors, the implementation into law of, of UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People, which greatly enhances uh, the presence and influence and power of First Nations at the table when it comes to uh, some of these operations. A top forestry executive in BC told me last year, as far as he's concerned, you cannot go forward with projects now unless you've got the support of First Nations. And that means, in some cases, a 50-50 proposal. All right, it's Baldry's Beat. Keith Baldry is my guest. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Steve in Vancouver. Hi, Steve. Go ahead. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to have to say I'm vaccinated. Um, but you have to, I, I, it's unfortunate, Keith, that you're noting that uh, the effectiveness of the vaccine for preventing spread and infection are, are still, you know, reasonably high. Because once Omicron came on the scene, they went from anywhere from like 95, 80, 60, down to like 10% or even lower after a month or two. So, I mean, 
I, I have no problem with having people that are not vaccinated on my planes, in the offices, or in the hospitals, because we all get COVID. Ask anyone. We, like, it's basically up to about 85% of kids have got COVID, including vaccinated ones. So I, I think you need to stop spreading information and we need to chill out and learn to live with this COVID uh, pandemic, which is basically now a, no, we, well, an end, and basically an endemic. You know, so you're the one with misinformation. So the concern is not getting COVID. No, we're not. <laughs> the, the concern is people who are in vulnerable situations getting COVID, and those are the people in hospitals. Right now, the the, number, the average or the median age of death from COVID, I think, is 81 years old. And those are p- older people in long-term care and in hospitals. And so th- many studies show unvaccinated people elevate the risk of people getting COVID-19. And it's one thing for kids to get COVID-19. It's another thing for your 81-year-old grandfather to get COVID-19 because they are in a position where mortality is much more at a much higher risk. So... I've got a family member in long-term care. I don't want an unvaccinated person working on them. Well, I think a lot of people who have family members in long-term care would probably feel the same way. I think, I think right? the vast majority. The most vulnerable so population. It's come up on our, our sort of council meetings, and to a person, every single person supports very strong protocols for long-term care. We've seen many people die oh. in long-term care. If you recall, at the very beginning, that's where the real the Lynn Valley Care Home, where yeah. more than 30 people uh, passed away. The... Um, the little mountain care home. Again, but the, you know, the caller, people. when the caller's, I think the caller's basic point was, well, you can be triple vax, quadruple vaccinated and still get COVID and still spread COVID. But you're but less. The point is that doesn't really matter for the general population. It's the most vulnerable. It's, a, it's the severity of the illness that's of concern. Yeah. And again, you know, we don't have vaccine rules in schools. Um, but again, it's not the, the fact that you're, you're around unvaccinated people in supermarkets. Uh, it's, Older people or people who are in hospitals suffering from illness or disease and their yeah. immune systems are compromised and suddenly right. you allow COVID to get in there, uh, the outcome can be much more tragic than getting in a supermarket. Okay, let's go to Kevin on the line in Victoria. Hi, Kevin, go ahead. Okay, Kevin's not there. Let's go to James in Comox. Hi, James, go ahead. Hi there. Yeah, it's a great question to ask and uh you know, obviously, there's a lot of emotional uh, stuff uh, behind uh, things for people that have people in long-term care. But, you know, this this uh, mandate has been unconscionable. It's obviously a human rights violation. It doesn't make any sense from a medical perspective. There's so many studies now that show people that are boosted are getting COVID and spreading it. So it's just, uh, it's basically frustration that people in government don't want to admit they've made a mistake. And it's, of course, going to be tons of lawsuits over this. And okay. uh, I just really so the, sad that that we can't we can't people like Keith are just so emotionally tied to continuing to scurrilize people. Okay, let me let, let's in the interest of time, let me let me get really let him respond. Bad. Let me let him respond. Go ahead. Well, it's too bad you feel that way, but uh, look, we're not uh, the mandate's not going to change. Uh, he keeps talking about lawsuits. People have been predicting lawsuits forever. Well, there have been lawsuits, but, and none of them have succeeded. None of them have su- succeeded. I think there's been two. Um, There's been no. human rights complaints too that yeah. I don't think have succeeded either. I but. Succeeded either. So again, this is not. This is, I think, supported by the vast majority of people. Uh, not 99, percent but a heck of a lot more people support mandates than not. He, thanks for coming in. Talk tomorrow. All right.